Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, tuning in the broadband channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business. With more than 80 million Americans connecting to the web at video-friendly speeds, TV networks have started using the Internet not just to promote their programs, but also to distribute them. The potential audience for online TV is already larger than the number of homes served by satellite TV and will soon be larger than the cable TV universe as well. In short, the net is becoming a new set of channels, some free, some not. In this animated discussion recorded live at the Culver Studios as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Four industry veterans, Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo, chat with host John Healy of the LA Times editorial page about how the internet is changing everything for TV networks, their producers, and service providers. Here is John Healy. Ron, why don't we start with you, if you don't mind? Fox.com is offering full episodes now through MySpace of, uh, I believe, 10 of your primetime programs. How did you choose the 10, and uh, what's the response been? Well, that's a good question. We put a number of cards in a hat, and we just kind of picked them. Of course, um, one of those cards wasn't idle. <laughs> no, actually, we chose certain programs to get a cross-reference of really top shows like 24, Prison Break, down to some of the new shows that we launched last year that will be coming back in spring this year. And so we want to get a feel for reaction of people watching these over the Internet. And we took a different approach to the way we were streaming these out on the Internet. We tested, and we're going to keep testing, and I think that's probably a lot of today's discussion, is we're going to test content, we're going to test platforms, we're going to test a number of different business models to try to get an idea of where the consumer is and where the consumer is coming from. So... It's an exciting time for all of us because we get, like we were just talking about, we get a chance to test. So I think we're going to keep doing that, and we're going to start seeing new shows, um, and we're going to add more content to it. Just so I know, if you go to a series like 24 at MySpace and want to watch it, can you watch all the episodes from this year, or is it just the most recent one? So could I go back today and see one through four? Well, with 24, uh, no. We're actually just in the last episode. When the season ends, we'll put all the episodes on there. Right now, we're just trying to get an, an idea of how many people are going to miss the show or come, come back and watch that episode again. So we're doing a lot of evaluation, a lot of measurement, and again, just to understand kind of people's habits and what their, what their interests are. And people are not shy about providing feedback. Now, Vivi, NBC.com has full episodes. It has two-minute summaries. And it has exclusives. So talk a little bit about what the audience is responding to and, and whether there's any pattern there for its show by show. Well, John's right. We're learning so much. We like to say internally that we have a lot of information and very little knowledge yet. And the truth is we are able to measure a lot of the particular analytics about what they go to first, how long they stay, whether it's streaming, if they watch one clip. Do they automatically go and search out other clips like it? So we're learning a lot of that. I, I think the answer is they're responding to all of them, but of course you'd expect me to say that. Mm -hmm. The truth is I think the recaps serve such a significant purpose for us, dual purpose for us, 
it is heavy promotion. In particular, this year, all the networks came out with a lot of serialized dramas. And it's an aid to the viewer if they come and catch up with a... They hear about this great show, Heroes, and they start watching episode seven. They had a chance to go back and see it from the beginning. And, and I think the recaps have played help with that, as well as the episodes. The most surprising, in a good way, response so far from, from the viewers slash users has absolutely been the streaming episodes. It's funny. You see people, even in our own building, it's a little bit like an instant cognitive memory of, oh, I forgot to set my TiVo, (laughs) but I can watch it online. And it's sort of an instantaneous, I didn't have to pre-plan. And it's funny. You can see the behaviors changing pretty radically. And to think that really none of the networks were doing full episode streams just really truthfully about still six months ago at that. And we had over 30 million full episode streams in four months. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of to go from zero to that, that quickly. So it's pretty impressive. So that's, I think that's the area that we're responding to most. Great. Blair, iFilm has been around since you actually survived the dot-com crash. Just about. Uh, yeah. Well, still today. Uh, but at that time you were largely aimed at independent film and, and shorts. Now we're seeing some TV on your site. Talk a little bit about your TV strategy and why you're doing mostly small segments, three-minute segments, instead of full episodes. Yeah, so I film, for those of you who don't know, which is probably most of you, we're now part of MTV Networks, part of Viacom, as of about a year ago. So, you know, one of the reasons that when we looked around at the things we could do with the company to grow it, that we chose them as any other potential partner or acquirer was the wealth of television programming that they have in their library. You know, arguably the definitive guide to pop culture in America for the last 25 years is in the in the vaults of, of MTV networks, which includes many, many television stations. And we'd always put short-form video up, and we're a network of short-form video, and we went through the sort of arc from independent short films in 1998, which was pretty much all you could get your hands on then, all the way through to movie content, clips and trailers and so forth. And television content became an increasingly big element of it. So the extension of going from clips to what we now have, which is some full-length episodes as well, was a fairly natural one. The strategy is, and sounding like a cop-out because everyone else has said it, but what we know is whenever there's a new medium, there's different content words than new medium from the previous medium. And what we found is some of the television shows we put online, which have done extraordinarily well on television, have not performed well for us online. And then vice versa, there have been some things that we've dug out of the vaults of MTV networks and put online that have done phenomenally well and, you know, and continue to do well. So it really is a period of experimentation because it's a pretty recent phenomenon. In fact, you know, we can all attest to the, to the fact that it's about a year or so at most that we've been able to get full-length television programming online. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, but what we do know is that we can find out very quickly what people want. And the great thing is we can adjust our programming schedule effectively in real time. Mm-hmm. Now, Evan, at, at TiVo, you folks can actually bring the Internet straight to a TV set, which is a very attractive opportunity, seemingly for lots and lots of folks who want to bring programming to the TV set, not to the PC. Talk a little bit about what sort of content you folks are finding and what the audience is responding to. Sure. So we started last year a, a service called TiVoCast, where we are bringing programming that is not found on network television to the TV, and people can download it to their TiVo 
uh, via their broadband internet connection. We've been focusing on a, a wide variety of things, everything from web media such as CNET and the New York Times, video clips from them, to video blogs from Rocket Boom and, and others. And we've really been doing that as an experiment to see what will take, everything from the major media to individual content producers. It is focusing a little bit more on short form. We've deliberately stayed away from things like network television and movies for now, simply because if you have TiVo, you can already record those. We're more interested in seeing what people will take. And I think the interesting thing is some of these web brands, such as CNET, you know, for the population that we deliver to, they're achieving numbers that are equivalent of a Nielsen top 20 kind of rating. Wow. Now, Mitch, talk to us about what you're finding the audience to be and what, what are they looking for? Who wants to see television through the Internet as opposed to over the air? Well, I think as you've heard on the panel so far, there's a huge experiment going on right now and it's video over the Internet. And they're experimenting in ways that any new model, I mean, for the most part, I think it's only about six months to a year old where we're starting to see a lot of video arriving on the Internet. But if you think about it, what the Internet provides is it it provides another channel into the home. And so what we're finding, for example, on the very young crowd, if you're looking to 13 to 17-year-olds, for example, they like portability and watching content on portable devices. If you look at the age group a little bit older, once you get to 18 to 24, you're starting to see that this demographic is using the laptop as their primary form of medium. And as you get older into the workforce, 25 to 34, they're the ones buying the Series 3 TiVos and having the big screen TVs. So what we're finding in this huge experiment that's happening right now is that consumers are accessing content on the Internet to actually view on different forms of devices in the home, even though traditionally, and it applies even more so today, the television set is still the number one device in the home where people watch long-form video. In fact, while you see all this additional use happening on the Internet through all these other devices, television viewership has actually increased So it's a very interesting phenomenon going on right now, and and the more interesting part of the experiment is going to be to see how we monetize these new businesses. You've raised two really interesting jumping-off points there. Let's start with the TV viewership effect. I know that there was some fear of cannibalization in the early days, but then you had experiences like NBC doing The Office and finding that actually they were able to build an audience for a show on the network through the Internet. So, Ron and Vivi in particular, what are you seeing in terms of how the Internet is interacting with your TV viewership and the broadcasts? It enhances the experience for the consumer. When we have episodes going on, which are normally broadcasts, and then you can go online and learn more about the characters. You can actually have backstories going on at the same time in between the episodes at the same time the episodes are being aired. But I think the interesting thing that we're seeing today with all the new disruption in our, in our business that the general reaction from many of the studios is to treat this stuff very fearfully. You know, They want to stop all this new technology. And what we found was with PVRs, they actually increased television viewership in the home. And now we're starting to see with portability, now you had place shifting on top of that. And once again, where people can now watch television content 
while they're waiting or while they're traveling, we're seeing that television viewership is probably going to take another bump again. So it's very interesting to see how the Internet is actually enhancing the television experience, not only from the standpoint of additional content, but from the standpoint of enabling portability. We have found, in fact, that it's grown the audience, which is is absolutely news. You're completely right, John. There was a lot of fear, just like there was in the beginning, television to DVD. There were two schools. One said, who would want to watch television on a DVD? And the second said, well, wait a minute, it's going to take all of the viewing away. If they know they can buy it at the end of the season, why on earth would they watch it? In fact, that isn't what happened. DVD actually grew the pie and grew the audience. The exact same thing is happening. We just got a new piece of research in. I noticed that I think it was last week or the week before CBS released a piece of research. Very similar findings, surprisingly similar findings. We have found that a small incremental amount of people say, oh, well, if it's on the Internet, I'll just watch it there. I won't watch it on television anymore. But that's a very small percentage. Three, almost four times that amount say, no, no, no. I will watch it again if I love that show. I'll watch the segment I missed because I was helping the kids with their homework or because I came home late, or as I said, because they forgot to set their TiVo. Or they'll go back and watch, for instance, in Heroes, they want to see a special effect or they want to see a clue that they missed or something like that. So we are seeing it, in fact, additive to the viewing experience, which is really an interesting piece for us. So it's actually growing the pie, as did iTunes. I think what's going to also be interesting is, you know, with the TiVo Series 3 or Sony will be releasing a Bravia television set with IP that you can actually have a lean-back experience where you can start getting AOL and Yahoo and some other broadband channels directly to the TV. Because right now, when you think about the Internet, it's a lean-forward experience. You're online, it's on portable devices, on your PC or your laptop. It's going to be interesting to see the effect when broadband becomes more of a lean-back experience and you can actually surf broadband channels directly on your TV. So it'll be interesting to see that dynamic in the future. Ron? I also think in some of the research that we've recently completed, it has increased the audience, and I think it's going to be good for, for each one of the networks moving forward because it's the time they're watching it. So if you look at the time of day that most people are watching these shows, at least in, in you may be able to do the same thing in our research, shows from about noon Eastern time to about 3 p.m. Eastern time is a very large segment of our overall streams. And then it bumps back up in the evening around 10 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, Ron, but that's really interesting that you just said that. It's always been the best broadband usage was always between sort of 11 and 2 in the midday, mm-hmm. and that's because everybody had their faster connections at work. And, of course, they were all diligently working while they were watching. Yeah. But we found that still to be true with shorter clips, maybe that's what you're saying, with the full episodes, it actually replicates prime time audience peaks for usage, which is interesting. Yeah. I think long-form content, I mean, big, obviously a big difference where we're, MySpace has generally been a short-form content group, and we've had about 1.5 billion streams, and compared to YouTube had about a billion streams last year. So... Short form, I think MySpace has got a pretty good start. Long form content, which we're all testing and we're all new at long form content, I think it does some of that replicate prime time. But we see pretty large bumps um, in the afternoon. And it's interesting because, you, you know, companies try to block that content, especially if it starts sucking up too much bandwidth. And that will probably happen. But now with the, the charge of, of broadband coming from the wideband, usually like with Earthlink and with Google out there, you could be sitting on your laptop having a experience getting your Wi-Fi there inside your office and you can still get your content. I'm sure they'll 
you know, you're an, I, an IT guy, you can find ways to block it, but um, <laughs> you know, consumers are pretty creative, and I think that if they want to get their content, they're going to get it. And the fact is that they are watching these full-length episodes. Our average time per episode right now is a little over 30 minutes, and that's a long time. Yeah. And it's a difference between, we're testing on MySpace, and we're also testing with all the, um, the own stations, and now with all of our affiliates, and we see a difference in the consumer there. We see the consumer, more of a television viewer, taking a longer period of time to watch those episodes coming from the television stations versus coming from MySpace. You're listening to Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo. This is Zocalo. If you crave intelligent conversation and like free events, then the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series is for you. On February 20th, the irascible columnist, novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch discusses what he calls the trouble with black popular culture. In a lecture at the Center for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment in downtown Los Angeles. And on March 6th, Eric Alterman, prolific author, media critic, and columnist for The Nation, visits Zocalo at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. To reserve your seats, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We return now to Tuning in the Broadband Channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business. Given that you've got the numbers of streams being viewed, large numbers, tens of millions, and you've got really good Stickiness. I mean, they're staying on those sites for a long time. You would think that advertisers would follow. Are they following? Are the advertisers willing to commit the kind of money to this that would be proportionate to the audience? I've got about $30 in my pocket right now. I think advertisers <laughs> are, are a little slow to go. I think they're in the same boat. They're also and he says that in the nicest, most complimentary way. Oh, very way. much so. Very much. I think, again, they're doing the same thing. They're going to test it and you know, you'll see some advertisers that are more assertive than others and are willing to go out there and do these tests. But I don't think the business models are there yet. I think we've got a long way to go and looking at several different types of business models. And if anybody's making money at this table, I'd, I'd like to talk to you after. I think, again, it's going to be next two or three years, it's going to be pretty exciting. I was just reading about the amount of ad spend right now for video. And I think they had said for 2006 it was $15.9 billion for television and only $775 million for Internet video. So it kind of shows you, and then it's going to grow maybe, I think they said, to $3 billion by 2010. But if you still compare that to the amount of ad spend expected on television, it's still very, very low. I'll but, be surprised if, if this year in the upfronts and following Scatter Upfront, for those who don't know, is a period from basically May to July where all chaos ensues in television and network television and major advertising agencies are sort of placing their money, their big bets, if you will, on what fall lineups have been announced. So a lot of base money and revenue is laid in for networks at that time. But I'll be surprised this year if we don't see a pretty significant growth. We're already hearing a lot to your question, John. We're already hearing a lot from advertisers that they too want to experiment, which I think is what you're saying, Ron. And Really, they're saying, yeah, we would like to do a WAP site. We'd like to have a WAP presence. And it's a very, very small percentage. WAP is really getting a website on your cell phone. And it's a very small percentage of people that are actually capable of, of looking at it, much less actually looking at it. But they want to learn the same thing. They don't want their competitor to have more time in that space than they do. They want to experiment with what creative works. 
how to reach everyone, what kind of an experience they should expect, whether they paid too much, too little. So they're curious about that as well. So we're finding them actually asking for those components to be in on their television buys now, partly for R&D, but partly it's a little bit of money, but it's still, they want to get out there and try it. I totally agree. And I think that some of the advertisers were testing length of commercials, pre-rolls, mid-rolls, post-rolls. We're testing companion ads and, and synchronizing those with the video. We're testing contextual ads, paid search, and all these different things that are going to help drive some of those revenue models. But I do think we know for sure, even this very short period, that the normal 30-second commercial, it's just not going to work. I mean, it's a very long time to spend there and watch 30-second commercials on, on the Internet. So we've got one advertiser, I think it's done a really good job, is Toyota, who, you know, we don't go over 10 seconds, either on a pre-roll or a, uh, a mid-roll, and we don't put more than three mid-rolls in a one-hour show. But there's another phenomenon at work as well, which this new medium has sort of introduced, which is the other end of the spectrum, there's such a thing as great advertising that people actually want to watch online. I mean, every year iPhone puts the, all the Super Bowl commercials online. And last year we delivered about 20 million people asked to watch 20 million Super Bowl commercials in a three-day period. And this year, I'm sure it'll be bigger. I was one of them last year. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you're you. Welcome. Can you. I'll give you his 30 It's bucks. one of my favorite yeah, things thanks. on iPhone. And I think you're right. That on some of those, we're you, putting advertising showcase in some of the content where you would put initially put an episode, you have advertising showcases where people can actually watch those commercials. So this year now, we've got advertisers buying space in our showcase of Super Bowl ads, and they're giving us ads that won't run on TV or couldn't run on TV because they're sort of risque or too long or just that, another version. Is that GoDaddy? I think you're talking about GoDaddy. It is, in out. fact, well, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> the rest are a secret. Yeah. I know yeah. there's a gaming platform, Wild Tangent. It's basically they try to mimic the video arcade experience, so you pay per play as opposed to downloading the entire game. You can pay a quarter and you get an hour's worth of play. And... What they started doing was, if you didn't have a quarter, didn't want to spend it, you could pull a commercial down, and you'd get a token for another hour's worth of play. And because it was not pushing a commercial at a particular demographic, but it was somebody actually pulling one of 10 or 15 commercials to view, their CPMs are between 100 and 150 CPM, which is probably the highest uh, in the industry. And once you start getting up to the point where the Internet actually enables you to pull a commercial down that you might be interested in for the right to watch maybe something commercial-free, we're going to start to see some very interesting models start to roll out. It may very well take a a high CPM in in that nature to start really creating some ad revenue for the online community. We we took that a, a stage further. We had a small sample of our audience. We gave them an experience that said, basically, you're about to watch an ad, All you can choose is which one. And we gave them a choice of three ads, and the abandonment rate fell to a six. Perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And and that was even for the same creative. The creative we forced them to watch, the people who chose to watch it abandoned at, you know, 30% less of a rate. So To me, that just drives home again that this is about a group who wants control. Absolutely. These people want to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, where they want to do it, and on what device. And that makes perfect sense. You put them in the driver's seat for their ad. But also, if you think about the driving up CPM, which is really important, that everyone talks about the new millennials, which is about, I don't know, 9 to 29 today, that age group, which is bigger than the baby boomer group, as being the, the first digital consumer. And one of the key things that identifies a millennial is their ability to multitask. They can't just sit and do one thing. 
But the funny thing is, when you think about multitasking to a millennial, it's still around the screen. So they're emailing, they're texting, they're watching multiple videos, they're doing email, but it's all around the screen. And when you look at multitasking from a television viewership, they're cleaning the house, they're reading the paper, they're doing crossword. They're multitasking away from the screen. So it's much easier for someone who's watching a commercial on TV to zone out because of multitasking. It's more difficult for someone who's multitasking on a platform such as the PC when they're online. So they're both multitasking, but it's interesting that from a CPM, you would think that the online would actually get more per CPM anyway. Well, let's talk a little bit about ad targeting. These platforms allow you to do the sort of thing that broadcasters can't do. You can send an, an ad to a demographic that you know is going to be more interested. And also you could do an opt-in model where somebody could sign up at the beginning and say, look, these are the things I'm interested in. Show me these kinds of ads, and you could do that. Now, TiVo has been experimenting with this for years. So, Evan, talk a little bit about what sort of things you've learned and, and what's working and, and what are advertisers willing to do. Well, certainly. I, I do find it interesting that here we have a, a bunch of people representing the networks and the place that they can experiment is on the internet. We've been trying to experiment with television advertising and the things that can be done there for a long time. We have had a number of products for a number of years, things like interactive tagging, being able to do response-based television, enlarging the real estate footprint of a 30-second ad, basically. We know, of course, people use TiVo to skip ads, but we do find that people watch... (laughs) Yes, they do. Um, But we do find that people watch the ads that are relevant to them. And more importantly, they will spend time immersively in some of these ads. We have things where you can be watching a 30-second video, and you'll see a tag that says, click here to find out more. We can take you to a long-form ad. We can take you to, would you like to be contacted, in the case of you know some of our, our auto sponsorships, would you like to be contacted by a dealer, a promotion that we did with Lexus, would you like to go customize your car and get a specific brochure sent to you? So by that point, your entry point has been the 30-second ad, but you've spent eight, nine minutes in this bit of real estate. We have expanded that real estate. We think this is a, a really interesting place to do it because it is on the couch in the living room. You effectively don't have as many outs as you do on the Internet. It's true. People multitask on the Internet. You've got how many chat windows open, how many browser windows open. The likelihood that you'll be distracted from whatever message is coming at you in one browser window is quite high, whereas if you're in the immersive experience of watching with your remote control... You're watching one ad. You don't like that ad. You move on to the next one. It's not like you have 10 or 15 other windows necessarily competing for your attention. And what we've really tried to do is focus that energy on making sure that the particular ad that you watch in the pod, there may be eight ads which come at you in a particular four-minute pod. One of them may appeal to you, and we want you to spend eight, ten minutes with that one. And that's where the advertisers, I think, can, can get their value. I also think you've got a different consumer holding the remote control and you do multitasking on the internet where I'm going to watch Super Bowl on television and I may have a TiVo with me, but my son's going to watch it in his room on the computer along with doing a few other things. So I think that, that there's all different types of consumer obviously out there and we're all in little different businesses. It looks like we all have little different job responsibilities Except for you and I. <laughs> we're pretty much in the same we're, area. We're almost competitors. We have to be careful what we say to each other. <laughs> yeah. 
but I think you've got different consumers. And I think you've got consumers now that are looking at developing short-form content around long-form content. And what I mean by that is user-submitted content. One of your shows on, on um, Saturday Night Live is probably a really good example on stuff you're doing with YouTube where you've got a skit on Saturday Night Live within 24 hours a person had mimicked that skit and had, was it five, I think it was 500,000 views, segment views in a in what, 48 hour period or something like that? It was unbelievable. Is that Lazy Monday? No, it was on a, um, I don't know if I want to go there. It was on a, it was oh, a, it was I a, know. yeah, yeah. Okay. a school <laughs> fund. Ron okay. doesn't say want to say the name okay. of, yes. the, yeah. of the piece, but you <laughs> started it, so I'll let you yeah, say. Exactly. But that gives you an idea of people that are very creative and just want to get their content out there. It's interesting to see what may happen with 24. We may have people developing bits around 24 just because they can, and they can get that submitted onto the Internet now and get plays, and they all like to have their five minutes of fame. But how does that get monetized? Where is the model here that's going to say this additional energy also generates money? It's not. Um, right now, at least, it's not generating money right now. And well, I, I think you, that's going to be... content isn't generating money? Well, I'm, I'm saying when it comes around to that long-form content versus the short-form content, right? The, MySpace monetizes its short-form content, but it's very difficult to monetize that content today, and it's, it's not easy. We find it relatively easy. I mean, we, we've, been, we've been monetizing short-form content online since the beginning. And when the whole idea of user-generated content appeared, I mean, MySpace is slightly different because you have, you know, there's a huge HTML pages of stuff that's sort of hard, harder to monetize, but we've always had just video. And initially everyone said advertisers will never go for any of this stuff, but, you know, the difference between a pro and an amateur in terms of, of generating content is on one hand just whether they're getting paid or not. Mm-hmm. And there's an enormous amount of extremely popular content on iFilm and, and elsewhere online that's no different because it was generated by users than, than the pro stuff. And we're monetizing stuff at basically the same rate that we ever did, and yet now 35% of all the content that's consumed on iFilm is user-generated. So I'm, you know, I'm probably alone in this regard, but I'm certainly confident that we can do it pretty much as effectively. Now, we don't have much long-form television programming, so... Those economics are obviously different, but short-form video user-generated stuff seems to be... We seem to be doing a good job. You know, we're selling demographic and audience a lot more than we are any one particular piece of content. That's a good sign for us, then. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Want to hear your favorite Zocalo radio shows again? No problem. Grab the podcast at ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In just a moment, we'll return to Tuning in the Broadband Channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Former world chess champion Garry Kasparov is strategizing again, but this time in politics, in the opposition, in Russia. Intelligence doesn't hurt your plans. Intelligence is more helpful when you have the rules. And obviously the only rule in Russia is that the Kremlin makes the rules. I'm Steve Inskeep, making moves toward Russian reform, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. 
Monday morning, President's Day. It's Air Talk here on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle inviting you to join me as our guests will include Hall of Fame player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of the Los Angeles Lakers. His new book takes a look at the Harlem Renaissance. We'll also be talking about the state of Southern California theater with four of the artistic directors from the major houses in the Southland. It's Air Talk Monday morning at 10 LA Theater and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Tuning in the Broadband Channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business, with Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo, moderated by John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial page. Vivi, in the case of Saturday Night Live, you've had a number of things that have generated on YouTube this whole conversation among users. And I can see how you can strike the deal with YouTube to do a revenue split on a Saturday Night Live short, say, Lazy Sunday, the original. But when somebody else responds to that with a Lazy Monday, and it's their own creation, do you get a piece of that? I mean, if you, if you do, great for you, but how? We don't. I think you're talking about two sort of different goals. One is the notion of 100% a one-to-one ratio of monetizing. Mm -hmm. I think that's where Ron was going. I think there's also a sensibility. If your backbone is basically a television network, you want Saturday Night Live to be seen as vital, as something you can reach out and quite literally touch in a YouTube model. The webisode for 24 was awesome, the first one you guys did this season, and it was out there, and I'm sure it cost you more to make it than you got in return, but you allowed the audience, especially if we're talking about a YouTube audience, it's enormous, it's in the right demographic, especially for Saturday Night Live. So that's a wonderful promotion and marketing tool. Mm -hmm. If they want to see some more things, where might they go to check that out? Well, gee, they might go to NBC.com. We certainly, with The Office last July... Over this last summer, we did 10 webisodes that were completely a separate story, obviously based on the show with actors from the show, but it was a fun sort of sidebar. And there were 10 of them. We took the first one and we put it everywhere. We went agnostic. We went what we call, we went wide. So we sent it everywhere, the first one. But we certainly in the tag told you where to find the other nine. So there is lots of ways to use that to your advantage. But if that's sort of the site of the people where they're creating their own, our marketing department did a great contest last year also with the office and YouTube. And we put a few assets up, a little bit of a graphic, a little bit of a clip, and we allowed everybody to make their own office promos. And some of the stuff was amazingly brilliant. I mean, really creative. And we aired the best ones on television. So there's a give and take there um, between the users and the viewers that I hate to keep using the experiment word, but we are learning a lot. But it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. You can't hands off if I don't make $5. It doesn't have to be that way. Something I find interesting is that the examples that we're using here, there's a lot of great short-form content out there that's being created both by the networks and by, by users. A lot of the short-form stuff that's being created by networks, is some of it stands on its own and some of it is very much promotional, pointing back to linear television. One of the things that we find interesting you know, at TiVo is that there's a very well-defined business model for getting very specific kinds of linear television on. 30 minutes, 60 minutes with a certain number of commercials. But if you had it a great 10-minute short, short of putting it in a, as a series of clips or, or somewhere in a Saturday Night Live vignette, 
it's very difficult to find the mass audience for that, right? So I think one of the, the challenges that we see coming up is if you want to watch, you know, one of these shorter form webisodes on TV, as many of these are being created with the kind of production values that you'd want to watch it on TV, there isn't a great way to do that yet. I mean, TiVo is, we're certainly moving in that direction, but I'd, I'd say that some of this stuff deserves to be watched on television as opposed to the web. Let's talk about bridging the internet to the TV and the potential there for having a, a route around any sort of gatekeeper, <clears throat> cable, satellite. Blair, why don't you start off? How important would it be to you to be able to get straight to TV sets through the internet, through to millions, tens of millions of TV sets, without having to strike deals with a, with a cable operator or even with a network? We don't have the history of, of sort of facing this problem because we're, I suppose, what we call a pure internet play. At least prior to joining Viacom from 98, we were building this as a pure internet business. And I think there's a gap between today and where this converges in the not-too-distant future because at the moment, the novelty of having all this programming available on demand is still apparent. You know, it's the same sort of surprise and excitement and novelty that we had with music in the Napster days about six years ago. You know, the, the blocking and tackling that's been done is just getting the stuff online at all. And now the business models are emerging, the usage models are emerging, and, and so forth. So, but in the, in the near future, everything will be, this is going to sound like a sort of trite, obvious remark, but everything will be everywhere. It will be the case that all the content will be available in effectively real time on all devices. And the programmers and people who are currently sort of schedulers for television will be schedulers for this myriad devices in different times of day, and they'll be conscious of where people are and what they're doing 24 hours a day. The task will be in sort of managing how to schedule this content for release and, and how to get it to people rather than connecting up disparate networks, like trying to figure out how to hop from cable to internet to wireless to television, because all that will naturally blend together. And I think a lot of these issues are sort of short-lived and ultimately go away. But the answer to your question is it would obviously be transformative, especially in the mobile world. Being able to get to mobile without having to pay too much to carriers would certainly be transformative. John, I think, I think your point, though, is when are we going to start seeing the online experience, which is a true video-on-demand experience, hit the big screen where everybody wants to watch television for the most part as opposed to watching it on a small on a small screen. And I, and I think the problem historically has been lack of innovation in the set-top box arena because there's only been two companies that have been making set-top boxes. There's been a kind of a duopoly there. And I think the Telecommunications Act that recently is opening up unidirectional services, which enabled, for example, the TiVo Series 3, I think what's going to happen is we're going to start to see a lot more products start to hit the marketplace that are both cable boxes but that have broadband connections. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more services where the online experience is going to be going directly to a television set, and it will start to attract a different audience at the same time. And that competition is going to be great for consumers, too. It's going to the be great. It opened that, up the marketplace. Right. You know, from TiVo <clears throat> on, and sort of in the middle, and then the cable operators with their set-top boxes, and then... Windows media centers and things at the other end of the and spectrum. And Sony's with mm-hmm. smart TVs. I mean, TVs well, so I, I was just going to get yeah. to them. But yeah. again, I mean, this is not a, this is not, certainly I, I, I hate people on panels who advertise products, but it just so happened that Sony had a, had a television set that does and will be receiving IP directly to the set, and it's the Telecommunications Act that enabled 
these unidirectional devices where you can still get cable via a cable card, but the device that you're receiving the content isn't owned, rented, leased by the cable operator. Yeah, I think part of your question was working around the cable mm-hmm. companies. I think just the opposite. I think working and partnering with the cable companies, the MSOs, is probably a very effective way to go. I think there's some business models working with them for them to lighten up some of the restrictions that they now have on our companies on how much content we can produce today on the Internet. And so I think working with them, we're going to get much further ahead. Okay, and will they also help solve the problem of the needle in the haystack problem? Because as soon as you introduce the Internet into the 170-channel universe, it becomes the 170-million-channel universe. They've got their broadband strategies themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that this thing is going to play out, and I think that the cable companies are going to be in this market. And I think that from our perspective, I think it's better to work with them. You're listening to Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo. You know about Zocalo Radio, but have you checked out the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series? In the coming weeks, the Eclectic Roving Lecture Series will feature the irascible columnist Stanley Crouch discussing what he calls the trouble with black popular culture. And Eric Alterman, prolific author and media critic, visits Zocalo to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. Zocalo events are free, but reservations are recommended. Reserve your seats now at ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Up next, the Zocalo audience asks the questions as we return to Tuning in the Broadband Channel, how the Internet is remaking the TV business. I love this panel. I have about 200 questions, but I'll start with two. Ron, what are you learning from the simultaneous release of the first episodes of 24 on DVD versus its availability online? And then second of all, what is everyone learning about how you're going to deal with the creative end of this, particularly with the Writers Guild coming up for negotiation for the contract with the networks? I'll take your first one, the on-demand stream versus the download. And... We've seen, at least online, between those two, both of those views and sales have gone up right after the episode airs. Our DVD sales have also gone up. So, again, it's like putting the McDonald's location. You have a, a small mom-and-pop restaurant, and you put a McDonald's in, and you think you're going to go out of business, but actually you end up getting more business. This is interesting. So there's, there isn't any cannibalization that you've seen at iTunes from your putting the streaming on? Oh, I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. Mm. It has not happened yet. Okay. That's the same. I, I was just going to answer your question a couple ways. As far as you asked about the writers, and there are, it's interesting, we've all been talking about experimentation and all the places we're going and how quickly change has been accelerating in our lifetimes, in, meaning in, the, in dog years, you know, sort of in the last six months. All of that is true. What hasn't caught up yet, and Ron knows this as well as anybody on the panel, are all of our underlying agreements. So that isn't just writers and directors and actors. That's production company costs. That is underlying rights of who owns the original story. That is streaming. We had a great show, wonderfully produced, very effective show called Kidnapped on our air that didn't make it in the threshold for ratings, but it was a terrific piece of work and it came out of Sony. And we went back to them and asked them for permission, was not in our original agreement, 
to stream the episodes, even though the show went off the air. It had a rabid fan base that wanted to see the rest of the episodes. We'd done the expense of making these shows. It was good for both of our companies. Sony, being very bright and open-minded, said yes, and we put it on. And it did great on NBC.com. So that's one of those things we did not negotiate in advance for streaming rights, but we went back and it was in the best interest. So a lot of those underlying agreements are going to have to catch up, not just the labor side, but all the way through in terms of what we have the right to do. How long? Is it a rev share? Does one side own what we call the EST or electronic sell-through side of this, which would be iTunes and the other own streams? There's going to be a lot of models played with in the next it's even, it's year It's even two. more complex. When we think about, you know, we have a huge library of television product going back probably 50 years over at Sony. And uh, when we looked at some of our old episodes to actually put on the Internet to stream, while the rights were convoluted at best, we found out that we, when we retained the music rights for all these episodes, we didn't have rights to stream this stuff. So going back to the publishers to get the music rights has been so difficult and expensive that we're having problems to try to determine what's it worth going back and spending on versus actually going in, hiring new musicians and actually redoing all of the music for our shows and it's it's very we have done both we've done both also we've done both it's one of the toughest things we deal with rights rights issues by far are the um the biggest issue today music being one of them but also also if you think of the gills you know we we cannot grant permission to use a clip from a film without going back in a separate negotiation with the artist who appears in the clip. So you can't negotiate in advance when you do their original agreement. SAG says you have to go back and renegotiate at the time of the reuse. So if we have all these clips that we wanted to offer consumers to do mashups with for UGC sites, we can't even grant permission to use the clips to do some cool stuff without risking violation of the SAG agreements. And so we're leaving money on the table... Everyone is because advertisers are willing to sponsor some cool new types of programming based upon existing product. Our present infrastructure is relatively antiquated, and you guys are talking about stuff that may not even be supportable by the infrastructure that we have in place. What do you think is going to happen in the future? I mean, we're going to need fiber optics or something, and I've got wires coming into my house. Uh, we don't support Windows 95. <laughs> um, but but I, I think that um, you're right. I mean, you know, it's moving to fiber, and it's part of what's happening today is that you've got to keep up with technology, and it's expensive. For us, we try to encode our content at many different levels. We try to make it where it's available for people who only have dial-up connections where they're still going to get a really good experience. We're using the advancement technology that we've actually built ourselves and probably all doing this exact same thing to be able to provide that good experience across a broad spectrum. Well, we're going to see WiMAX rolling out big time in a year or so, and so we'll hopefully be able to have Internet connectivity in the car as you're driving down the street. Because so heaven knows we'd like to watch change. TV when we drive in Los Angeles. Well, if you saw, if, it's very interesting. You know, Sharp, I think, last year demonstrated a navigation screen where if you looked at it from this angle, you'd see navigation, but if you looked at it from this angle, you'd actually be able to see video content. So your, your passenger can watch TV while well, you're you looking at the you have satellite in your cars, so why so wouldn't you have... I think the good it's news, changing good news rapidly. From, good news from the consumer's perspective is that the rewards for the people who get this right, the infrastructure builders, whether it's the software infrastructure or the hardware infrastructure, 
The rewards are so high that they're pouring money into solving this problem. So there are fiber optic networks being built, at least two now, for the entire country. And, you know, the same things we've been talking about in terms of freeing up the content and the device guys all competing with each other, it's the same for the infrastructure guys. So I think we're going to see an unprecedented level of deployment of new infrastructure, technologies and capabilities for everyone. And while I personally wouldn't hold my breath until AT&T pushes fiber deeper into your neighborhood, um, I would point out that you are being helped by Moore's Law here. As processing power increases... That really helps on the compression side. So you're getting all these better and better ways to squeeze high-quality pictures into smaller space. And that's going to drive down the cost, which is going to allow all of us to push more content out, which is the other thing. Streaming is still fairly expensive. I I sat on a panel at CES with uh, one of the AT&T guys in development. I was actually impressed. I thought they were a little bit further along than I think most of them give us credit. I think they're holding it a little close to the vest is my guess there. But we also have peer-to-peer technologies that will help drive mm. down the cost yes. of the bandwidth also. I was on, I was on a panel. Um, it was like two weeks before we were to f- the MPAA companies were filing a brief in Grokster, which was the big peer-to-peer case. And I was on a panel, and someone asked me about peer-to-peer. And I said, well, peer-to-peer is not the problem. It's the unauthorized use of copyrighted content. And I remember the trades the next day, like I think it was Variety's, was like Sony executive says peer-to-peer, not a problem. So I'm always careful about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in a lot of the CDNs are using peer-to-peer to also reduce costs so they can deliver lower, uh, lower bandwidth costs to us. We look at that, though, and things like peer-to-peer or fiber-to-the-curb, fiber-to-the-home, the best mass market stuff is always going to be limited by whatever your lowest common denominator is. If not everybody has peer-to-peer, that means that you're restricted on some people on, on a much higher cost of delivery. And if some people only have fiber to the curb or only to the local loop but not to the home, that means there's only a certain amount of things that you can get to them. I mean, in the U.S. now, there are about 110 million or so television households. Only five or six million of them have DVRs. So, you know, we're very early on the adoption pattern for all of that. Yes, people are watching clips on the Internet, most of them have an average of maybe between 800K and maybe two and a half megabits at home. And uh, most people still have standard def. You've got 10, 15% of the market that's now into high def. So it's still a ways off for some of these things we're talking about. Yeah, but you know, every year, millions of analog consumers die. And, <laughs> and millions of digital consumers. Sony exec says. The, <laughs> is, this, is this what they were talking about when they, when they set a cutoff for analog in February of 2009? That's kind of scary. Uh, yes, sir. I'm wondering how satellite TV will compete with or play a part in all of this interactive technology. And also how uh, the new formats of DVD, such as Blu-ray, or high-def DVD might compete with better and better broadband that keeps reaching us? There used to be a product, I mean, I think there still is, on the DirecTV TiVos that are out there for getting stars. I mean, one of the great things about satellite is, unlike cable, satellite still is a true multicast broadcast technology. You spray it once, and everybody in the path can get it. So in terms of the economics of cost of delivery, other than the end-premises equipment that you have at the home, it is unquestionably one of the best ways to get things down. Now, the problem is, of course, 
how to achieve video on demand or, or that kind of instant gratification, some of the things that you see is precisely putting a DVR in the home and letting it, while you're not watching something or while it's not recording something on your behalf, if there's free disk space, let's record something that we think you might like. So even you know when your TiVo is, quote, sitting idle, it is recording things that you might want with the, the spare space. So you come back and, yes, you have your video-on-demand server there, if you will, which has been stacked up using the satellite. Cable requires a lot more investment to get to that point, but then you have two-way services that are, are not possible or not as possible on, on satellite. So, I mean, I think the, the two technologies can be adopted to do different things, and, and it's really a question of, of the economics, what you would choose to do with one versus the other. And high-def disks, which have some, in, at least in the specs, they have some expectation of interactivity. Uh, anybody want to take that one on? At least I wasn't asked about the format war for the first time. <laughs> the spec has interactive features for both HD DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, I think HD DVD is using Microsoft HDI interactive technology, and Blu-ray is going to be using Java. And we're going to start to see this roll out probably you know later this year with a lot more interactive features. And the bottom line is when you're delivering 50 gigs of, of data into the home, there's a lot of things you can do with it. So we're going to start seeing those features start to take off also. CES had a piece out for demo that handled all formats, which was really interesting to go look at. So who knows? I think there'll be solutions, as someone already said. They're racing to try to solve this from the technology and the equipment side as well. I just think it's really interesting to imagine what's going to happen when you've got a packaged media which is updatable because every one of the boxes that plays that packaged media has broadband internet in the back. That's what the boxes are being sold with. So the expectation is that you go to Blockbuster and and you rent a a movie, a high-def movie, and the trailers are actually the trailers for movies that are going to be in theaters next week or the DVDs that were released that day. Interesting possibilities. What I'm hearing from you is that your kind of focus is on using the Internet to market and distribute traditional and current programming. And what I was curious is to find out if there are what kind of discussions you are having between yourselves, viewers, and producers to use the Internet to create maybe like a new form of storytelling or a new form of interactivity. Say, for example, with 24, where maybe a couple of minutes are revealed or exclusively provided online, continues on the television program, and maybe even furthers in the feature, which I hear is in development. Well, we're actually working with independent producers right now in looking at building out linear scheduling for market-by-market uh, rollout. So there's a number of opportunities for independent producers today to look at getting their content out onto the Internet on a channel that will give them exposure to a lot of the networks that they can't get exposure to now. And is this sort of content things that are going to be wholly original, or are you working with independent producers to do stuff related to the brands that you already have going, the, the, the programs you already have going? Well, both, but we're putting a lot of energy into original content. Yeah, we, we've done the same. We've got a show called Web Junk that runs on VH1 on Friday nights, which was our first effort at this. And it was taking the best user-generated viral video that's contributed to iFilm and packaging it with a comedic host and things like that and putting it on television. It was a big success. It's in its third its third series now. And so we're doing about three or four other similar projects, but covering the spectrum from true original programming that's more, more at the end of the spectrum of sort of independent 
filmmaking all the way through to sort of the stuff that most people expect to see as sort of viral internet video. But going in that direction is it hasn't happened very often. In fact, I think we're one of the first, and I think the most successful example of something that was pure internet programming that then was was repackaged for television rather than the other way around. And it's, you know, so far we're, we're one for one, so. In fact, in an hour, on this coast anyway, Heroes Tonight, we started something brand new. We did hire an independent producer and brought him in to work sort of in the gap between me and the show. And we're launching what we call Heroes 360, which tonight has something happen in the episode that actually gives a puzzle piece to the audience that they can then use online on mobile, uh, on a website, and a two-screen interactive sync-to-broadcast experience where you're watching television and you're getting new information on your computer. All of those platforms... And that kicks off tonight. And that, again, started with, and I'm doing a commercial, I don't mean to, except for that started with an independent producer to answer the question. Because we found that the show didn't have enough time to get to that and produce the show. And my folks, who were dealing with the technology and sort of the writing and producing and design, didn't have time. And we had a gap in the middle, and this is something we wanted to do. So we brought someone in to fill that gap. We have a little bit of a a different approach at TiVo. One of the examples I mentioned before, some of you may be familiar with Rocket Boom, which is a five-minute daily video blog. As far as a a new format, it's video blogs or whatever, podcasts, whatever you would call them. People can do whatever they want with them. But we let Rocket Boom, they publish an RSS feed, straight Web 2.0 stuff, XML, with an enclosure. They put video in it, they publish it, and it goes straight through to TiVo, Anyone who's got a a TiVo connected to broadband can just sign up and get a single episode or a season pass, just like any other TV show. It shows up in your now playing list, just like any other TV show. And it's basically two people and a a MacBook and a video camera, and they got a show that is delivered to, you know, not millions, but certainly thousands and thousands of people. And the amount of equipment that they have to produce this is you can easily finance it on credit card. This is why I keep harping on the idea of cable bypass. It's probably a pipe dream, but I, I, sorry for the pun. But it, it, it does seem that you will have those outlets where you can take your message directly to the people. But maybe you weren't asking this. I, I don't know that we're going to see much of that sort of branching storytelling kind of thing. Much of what we're seeing, if I'm not mistaken, is still pretty linear in terms of the storytelling. Wow. It's all over the place. Um, I mentioned the Office webisodes. They were the same actors you're used to seeing. Completely different story. Didn't touch the story on the air. But could the the viewer say at some point, you know, I want things to go in this direction, not in the other direction? No. Close ended on that side. Well, thank you all. I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you very much to the audience for sticking with us and to our panelists for a really excellent and thought-provoking presentation tonight. You've been listening to Mitch Singer of Sony Pictures, Ron Berryman of Fox Interactive, Blair Harrison of iFilm, Vivi Ziegler of NBC, and Evan Young of TiVo, in a discussion moderated by John Healy. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. 
The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer.